Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 60 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Brian Green. He's a theoretical physicist whose work focuses on string theory. He's also the author of several popular science books, including The Hidden Reality and The Elegant Universe, and he recently appeared as the host of the PBS Nova special, The Fabric of the Cosmos. Then stick around after the interview as Dave and I talk about parallel worlds in fantasy and science fiction and discuss my new anthology, Other Worlds Than These. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Brian Green. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so you recently hosted a PBS special called The Fabric of the Cosmos. So how did that program come about, and why should people go check it out? Well, it's based on a book that I wrote of the same title, The Fabric of the Cosmos. And it is a show that explores some of the strangest features of modern science, but ideas that are well-grounded in mathematical research and observational data. So there's one program that asks the question, what is space, the stuff that's all around us? Another asks, what is time, this strange feature of our lives that's so familiar, yet so hard for science to pin down? And then there's a program on quantum mechanics that explores the micro world and focuses upon a feature known as entanglement where distant objects can somehow communicate with each other, even though nothing travels between them. And finally, there's a program on the most far out of all the subjects, the possibility that our universe is not the only universe, that we might be part of a multiverse. The challenge in creating a program like this about space and time and quantum mechanics and multiverse, there's not that much you can point a camera at to really show what we're talking about. So the programs rely upon a good deal of high-quality computer animation in which I worked with the animators, as did the, the whole team at Nova, to try to get the animations to be as close to what it would be like to go to these exotic realms that the programs are about, be it the micro world of quantum physics or the other universes in the multiverse, or to try to get a sense of what the fabric of space and time might actually look like. Since our podcast is a show for science fiction fans, uh, we were just curious if you're a science fiction fan yourself, uh, and if so, who are are some of your favorite authors? Isaac Asimov, I think, is, is probably my favorite. I think Ray Bradbury would be right up there, too. I love it when real science finds a home in a fictional setting where you take some real core idea of science and weave it through a fictional narrative in order to bring it to life the way stories can. That's my favorite thing. I've had various experiences where I've been called by Hollywood studios to look at a script or comment on various scientific ideas that they're trying to inject into a story. And, you know, I had a great meeting, I guess, with uh, with Jerry Bruckheimer on a film that was uh, came out a few years ago called Deja Vu with Denver Washington. There was a time travel element to this film, and I went to the studios in Hollywood, and they earnestly wanted to understand special relativity and the possibility of time travel that come from Einstein's insight. It was a great thing. I had a a whiteboard, and I was writing out the equations and explaining to them all these ideas, and they were really getting it. But at the end of the conversation, perhaps predictably, they said to me, but couldn't we modify things just a little bit so that this could happen or that could happen? And they wanted to deviate from the science. And in the end of the day, of course, Hollywood is really dedicated to making the films that will attract the most people into the theater, get the most people into the seats, and I fully understand that. You know, not to be self-promotion, that's not what I mean at all, but I did a small piece with Philip Glass called Icarus at the Edge of Time, where I rewrote the myth of Icarus, where the boy doesn't travel to the sun, but instead travels to a black hole. 
And there, the real physics of general relativity dictates how the story unfolds. And to make a long story short, the boy spends an hour near the edge of the black hole, but when he comes back and wants to show his dad what he's done because his dad told him not to go, he realizes that it's 10,000 years later. Because that's what would happen. Time slows down near the edge of a black hole, so for an hour for you, it could be thousands of years for somebody else who's further from the black hole. And with Philip Glass, you know, there's an orchestral score and a narrator tells the story. And the hope is that people who see this piece, and we've now performed it many times around the world, leave with a kind of visceral sense of what general relativity is about. They don't know the equations. They don't know the details. But they've gone on a fictional ride to the edge of a black hole, and they've come back with an intuitive understanding of some real science. Is that a realistic treatment in that the ship would be able to survive getting close enough to the black hole for the relativistic effects to take effect? It's a great question, and, and one that I worried about when we were doing this. And it turns out if the black hole is sufficiently big, then yes, it is a realistic rendition of what would happen. But the bottom line is, even if it were not the case, even if the full scientific story could not be realized in this fictional setting, I don't think it would matter. Because my point is, it's the core science, the science that really drives the narrative. In this particular case, it's the science of how time behaves near the edge of a black hole. That's what really matters. So I would say, give yourself license if you're a science fiction writer, to bend the rules at the edges in order to make a story work. But if you can keep the core science intact, if the integrity of the core science that really matters to the story, if that can be kept intact, I think that's a worthwhile goal to shoot for. Uh, so one of my favorite tropes in fantasy and science fiction is the idea of parallel worlds. Um, but in science fiction and fantasy settings, typically what happens is, you know, somebody from the real world travels to a, a, a parallel world. So assuming that, you know, parallel worlds or, you know, multiverse is actually real, uh, would it actually ever be possible to travel to a parallel world? Pretty tough to imagine how that would happen. So you may know I have a, a, a recent book called The Hidden Reality where I go through nine different variations on the theme of parallel universes. Because there isn't just one flavor of parallel universes. There's a version that comes out of quantum mechanics. There's a version that comes out of cosmology. There's a version that comes out of string theory and so forth. But one thing that they do share is it's pretty tough, if not impossible, to go from one universe to another in any of these versions, in any conventional notion of what it would mean to travel from one universe to another. So what I mean by that is, let me just give one example. So the parallel universe theory that comes out of quantum mechanics is called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And it emerges because the core idea of quantum physics that we learned about in the 1920s and 30s is that you can't predict with certainty the outcome of any experiment. And instead, the best you can ever do is predict the probability that you'll get one outcome or another, say a 30% chance of this, 50% chance of that, and 20% chance of that. Now, the question arose and still is with us, when you do a measurement and you find one and only one outcome, what happened to the other potential outcomes? And it turns out that the most straightforward reading of the math of quantum mechanics, as realized by a guy named Hugh Everett all the way back in 1957, the most straightforward reading is that the other potential outcomes actually do happen. They just happen in their own separate universe, which would mean that the experimenter, say me, would measure the particle and find it in one location in this universe and think that's the only outcome, but there'd be another copy of me in a parallel world finding the particle at a different location and another version of me still in yet another parallel universe that would find the third possible outcome. So there'd be three of me if there are three possible outcomes in these three parallel universes. Now, you could say that I traveled in some sense to all of them because there'd be a version of me in each of those universes. But the traditional notion of being able to jump from one universe to another in the way that we see in movies or sometimes read about in books, it's hard to see how that would have any meaning in this version of parallel universes. And a similar kind of discussion would apply to most of the others as well. 
I listened to a lecture where you talked about how if you were to fly deep enough into outer space, you might, in effect, end up in a parallel universe. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So another version of parallel universes comes from far more simple considerations than quantum physics. If space goes on infinitely far, then there's another flavor of parallel universe theory that emerges. Now, we don't know that space goes on infinitely far, but it's certainly a viable possibility that scientists today still seriously consider. And the version of parallel universes that comes out of that is pretty straightforward to grasp. You see, when we look out into space today, even with the most powerful telescope, there's just so far we can see because it takes light a certain amount of time to travel through space and reach us. So we only really have access to a chunk of space if it goes on infinitely far, the chunk that could have sent out a light signal that would reach us by the time we look up today. So it's roughly 30 to 40 billion light years is the size of that chunk of space. It seems big, but if the universe is infinitely big, that's just a small little patch, a little city, if you will, in a grand cosmic landscape that would go on much, much further than we have access to. Now, the reason why that's interesting is because in any finite region of space, matter can only arrange itself in finitely many different configurations. This is a fairly basic consequence of the laws of physics. And that means that if space goes on infinitely far out there, there have to be duplicates of us. And the argument's quite straightforward. Let me just give an analogy. Imagine you have a deck of cards and you start to shuffle the deck. Well, the cards will come out in different orders and you shuffle again, the cards will come out in different orders still. But since there are only finitely many cards in the deck, there are only finitely many distinct orders of those cards. It's a big number. But it does mean that if you shuffle the cards enough times, sooner or later, the order of the cards has to repeat. Now, by the same reasoning, since matter can only arrange itself in finitely differently many configurations in a given region of space, well, if you look region by region by region in an infinite cosmos, sooner or later, the arrangement of the particles has to repeat. There aren't enough different arrangements to go around, just like the shuffles of the deck of cards. Now, I'm just an arrangement of particles, as are you, as is anybody else, as is the Earth, the Sun, and so on. So if the particle arrangement here repeats someplace way out there, it means that you and I, the Sun, the Earth, they would be out there too. So that's a sense in which there would be parallel realities way out there in the cosmos if space goes on sufficiently far. And now to your question, you're right. If, in principle, if you could travel sufficiently far, you might be able to reach those other domains, those other parallel worlds. But again, physics comes in to pretty much thwart that possibility. First of all, we're talking about gargantuan distances, distances that are so spectacularly large that we'll never be able to traverse them, or at least any conceivable technology that we know of would never be able to travel those distances. But even beyond that, we've learned that our universe isn't static, it's expanding. And in fact, it's expanding ever more quickly. And because of that, there's actually a barrier, a physical barrier to how far we could ever traverse space. And that barrier would be too small for us to ever reach these other worlds. So again, the idea of being able to travel to a parallel world is likely one that can't actually be realized. Now, would the matter for all of those infinite worlds have all come from our Big Bang, or would are we talking about multiple big, like an infinite number of Big Bangs creating those worlds? Well, it's, it's, it's again a great question, and it does call into question the notion of what we mean by the Big Bang. You see, if, if our universe truly has finite size, then... Ever further back in time, the size of that universe would be ever smaller, so that way back at time zero or right near time zero, our entire universe would be a tiny little speck. And then that speck would swell rapidly, and that's usually the picture we all have in mind when talking about the Big Bang. But if space goes on infinitely far, this alternative possibility, 
then ever further back in time, objects in space are ever closer together, but space itself would still extend infinitely far. I mean, if you want to say that way back in time, the universe was half its current size, well, half of infinity, that's still infinity. A third of infinity, that's still infinity. So if the universe goes on infinitely far, then even way back at time zero itself, space would go on infinitely far. So the Big Bang would better be thought of in some sense as an infinite number of Big Bangs all happening throughout this infinite spatial expanse. And those Big Bangs, if you will, would be responsible for all the happenings in these different domains, these different chunks of space populating this infinite expanse, if indeed space does go on infinitely far. It's a different image of the Big Bang than the one that we traditionally have in mind. Um, so going to the Everett multiverse idea, how different could the laws of physics be in those parallel worlds? I mean, are we talking a different periodic table of elements, different fundamental constants, different subatomic particles? Uh, what's the degree of variation there? Well, in the Everett Many Worlds Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics, we aren't actually imagining that the laws of physics or the property of particles are varying. There are other versions of parallel universe theory, multiverse theories, that do, however, have this feature that you're referring to of different laws of physics and different particle properties. And the easiest one to grasp there is one that comes out of a field called inflationary cosmology. So inflationary cosmology is, in some sense, an enhanced version of the Big Bang theory, which seeks to fill in a missing piece in the standard Big Bang proposal. See, the standard Big Bang tells us how the universe evolved after the Bang, but doesn't tell us what powered the Bang itself. And people have tried to fill in that gap to try to figure out what drove space to rush outward in the first place. And a guy named Alan Guth, great physicist now at MIT in the 1980s, was the first to propose that there might be a naturally occurring kind of cosmic fuel that would naturally force space to rush outwards. And he proposed that this would be what drove the bang in the first place. The interesting thing is, as people began to study that proposal in more detail, they found that this fuel that he had proposed and others like Steinhardt and Linde developed further, this fuel would be so efficient that it would be virtually impossible to use it all up, which would mean that in inflationary cosmology, the Big Bang giving rise to our universe would not be a unique event. There would be Big Bangs that happened before. There would be Big Bangs that would happen after. Various and far-flung locations, each giving rise to its own expanding domain, each giving rise to its own universe. And when you study those universes in detail, you find that, indeed, particle properties can vary from one expanding realm to another. Those particle properties and various environmental influences can indeed make the laws of physics appear different from one expanding realm to another. So the variations in that version of the multiverse proposal can be quite, quite significant. I mean, one of my favorite book series, the, the premise is that there are characters who go between parallel worlds and they decide to carry swords with them rather than guns because guns stop working very rapidly when the laws of physics start changing around you. What do you think about that idea? Indeed, I would suspect that in those other worlds, things could be so different that not only would guns stop working, uh, everything else might stop working too. So uh, they prepare themselves well, but I think what they may not have taken into account is if the laws of physics vary enough that guns and gunpowder doesn't work, it's probably the case that the laws are such and they vary to such degree that the biological processes that keep us ticking would probably not be happening either. Okay, if there are materials in a parallel world that couldn't exist in our world, you know, that different laws of physics produced, and you could take uh, this material and bring it to our world, would it have, would it fall apart? Would it have special properties? You know, you can imagine the most simple example of that where perhaps the basic 
fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, maybe they exist in those other universes, but maybe their masses are a little bit different or their electric charges are a little bit different. And that idea is quite compatible with the mathematical formulations that we have of these various multiverse proposals. Now, if you study the properties of matter and how they depend upon the masses of the basic particles and the charges of the basic particles, you find something spectacularly interesting. If you change the basic properties of the particles by even a little bit, change masses by 20 or 30 percent, or you change electric charges by 20, 30, 40 percent, you really disrupt the atomic structure that's responsible for all those elements on the periodic table and the way those elements would exist and combine and behave. So even modest adjustments to the fundamental physical parameters would rapidly disrupt matter as we know it. So if you try to take things from one place to another, they would themselves suffer radical disruption. So you could imagine maybe that there are other universes where the changes are so slight that matter would suffer only the most modest of changes as it went from universe to universe, if indeed you could transport it from place to place. But in most of these multiverse proposals, the vast majority of the other universes would not be very close in these features to our universe, and therefore matter really could not survive that kind of journey. So science fiction stories are full of characters traveling through hyperspace, but in the fabric of the cosmos, you make it sound as if that wouldn't work because higher dimensions only exist at very small scales. Is that right? The most well-studied explanation for how our universe could have more than three dimensions of space, how there could be so-called hyperspace, and yet we don't see those dimensions, the most well-studied explanation is indeed the one that you're referring to. The extra dimensions are all around us. They're just crumpled to such a fantastically small size that we can't see them. Nevertheless, there are other proposals that have come on the scene of physics in the last 10 years, which imagine that the extra dimensions might be big. And the reason we don't see them is not because they're so fantastically small. The reason we don't see them is because the way that we see, using light and using the other forces of nature, those forces, except for gravity, it turns out, would be unable to penetrate those other dimensions. Those forces would be locked into our slice of space, our slice of bread, if you will, one way of thinking about it, even though there's other slices of bread, other universes, even though there's another dimension or other dimensions that are off of our slice of bread that fill out the entire loaf, we wouldn't have access to those dimensions because of the way the forces we have access to behave. But remarkably, gravity, as I mentioned, is different. And in these theories, gravity can penetrate these other larger dimensions. So, and again, a completely fanciful manner. You could imagine communicating across these other dimensions by sending gravitational waves, gravitational signals through these large extra dimensions. You and I, who are held together by the familiar forces, the electromagnetic force and nuclear forces, we couldn't literally travel into those extra dimensions, even though they would be big, but we might be able to send signals into them, at least in principle. So how close are we to having a teleportation device like the transporter in Star Trek? Well, we're pretty far. There are experiments going on today where individual particles are being teleported from one location to another. Now, this notion of quantum teleportation, which is what I'm referring to, is somewhat different from at least my rudimentary understanding of what the creators of Star Trek had in mind with the teleporter. There, I think. The basic idea is the material that makes you up is somehow scrambled or broken up into little pieces, and it's kind of sent through space and then reassembled at the distant location, say the surface of some distant planet. That's not the kind of teleportation that physics seems to allow. Instead, what happens in quantum teleportation is the object that you want to teleport 
is closely examined in one location, and all the information that defines that object is sent to the remote location, and that information is then used at the remote location to build what can be thought of as an exact duplicate of the object that you started with. So you might want to call that, I don't know, quantum Xeroxing or quantum faxing or you know something of that nature. What makes this a little bit closer to teleportation is that you can establish that the act of measuring the original object destroys it. There's no way that you can get at all the necessary information to rebuild it without disrupting its basic makeup to such a degree that it really wouldn't exist any longer at the original location. So if I asked you, where is the object? I think the best answer you'd give is, well, it's at the remote location because that's the only object that looks like the original that I started with since the act of measurement destroyed the original. So that's a version of teleportation. Again, it's only being done with individual particles. Perhaps that will be bumped up to some collection of particles at some point, but it is utterly, utterly beyond the pale to imagine doing this kind of process with the number of particles that make up any macroscopic body like a person or an object, like a car. So I am tempted to say we're infinitely far away from teleportation of big objects, but that would perhaps be a little too pessimistic, but we're nearly infinitely far away. I mean, one of the knocks against the Star Trek transporter from a scientific perspective has always been that it violates Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Does this quantum teleportation get around that somehow? Yeah, exactly. So the question is, how do you actually know the information about how an object is built? Because according to Heisenberg, in some sense, the act of trying to measure the object affects it. It changes it. You don't learn about the object's makeup prior to your measurement, your measurement itself impacts the answer. So the whole trick in quantum teleportation is to try to do an end run around that problem. And the way it's done is you don't actually measure the object itself directly. Instead, you bring the object into contact with some other material that's already in the teleporter, and you measure some joint features of the combined system of the object of interest and the raw material that was already there. And it turns out through some very clever mathematical manipulations, you can get all the information you need about the object through this more indirect measurement. And that information indeed tells you about what the object was like before you did the measurement. You're able to avoid the contamination of the measurement itself and in that way get a pristine result regarding the informational makeup of the object, send that to the remote location, and they can use that pristine information to rebuild the object. So there have been a lot of stories in the news recently about faster-than-light uh, neutrinos. Uh, what's your take on that? There aren't any faster-than-light neutrinos, <laughs> is the quick answer. The slightly longer one is, you know, even when this data was first brought to the public's attention, I guess, what was it, six months ago or so, most physicists, me included, looked at it and said, yeah, that would be great if it was true. But our suspicion is that closer examination of the experiment will reveal that there's a, an error, something isn't doing what somebody thinks it is, and at the end of the day, the data will not stand up to close scrutiny. And the reason for that simply was there's a mountain of experimental support behind Einstein's special theory of relativity. Anything which challenges that is going to have a, require a similar mountain of experimental support. And one single experiment suggesting that there's a violation of the speed of light barrier is far from convincing. The interesting thing, and you may know about it, is that in the last couple of months, the experimenters have indeed found a flaw in the experiment, a faulty fiber optic cable, which they suspect is the culprit. They're redoing the measurements, and they'll have the data soon. But there's already been an independent measurement done at the same location by a different group, and they have found that the neutrinos do not go faster than the speed of light. So I think that's an idea, however exciting it might have been, that one can pretty much uh, throw away. You know, there's a novel by Gregory Benford called Timescape. 
in which scientists use tachyons to send a message backward in time. What do you think about that idea? Well, the science, the, the theoretical science, that if you did have an object, a tachyon, that you might be able to use it to send a signal back in time, that's pretty solid. So the basic mathematics of Einstein's special relativity can be used to confirm that theoretical idea. The obstacle, of course, the thing which makes it so hypothetical is do tachyons exist? Do objects that travel faster than the speed of light exist? Now, that's why this report about neutrinos got a lot of interest from the press and from scientists because it'd be exciting. It would be something that would shake our understanding if indeed tachyons did exist. And neutrinos going faster than the speed of light might well be candidates for that. But the important thing to stress is there's zero evidence that tachyons exist, and there's zero evidence that neutrinos go faster than the speed of light and might be candidates for tachyons. Okay, so you participated in the 2011 Isaac Asimov Memorial Lecture, uh, where your colleague, Dr. Jim Gates, explained that his recent research leads him to wonder if we're living in the Matrix. Uh, what did you think about that? I have no idea. You know, Jim is a great scientist, good friend of mine. I've not really followed the ideas that he's been pursuing of late and just don't feel qualified to comment on it. There was something in the fabric of the cosmos where you said that there's some evidence that our universe is in some sense a 3D projection of information in a 2D shell surrounding the universe. Uh, what was that all about? Well, that's a wonderfully weird collection of ideas that go under the heading of the holographic principle. It's a collection of ideas developed over the last 30 or so years, initially starting with attempts to deeply understand the physics of black holes. See, black holes, we all know, are these regions where if an object falls in, it can't get out. But the puzzle that many struggle with over decades is what happens to the information that an object contains when it falls into a black hole? Is it simply lost? You know, if I throw an iPad chock full of all sorts of wonderful apps and books that are on it, is all that information lost when it goes into a black hole or not? Now, Stephen Hawking believed that the information was simply lost. It falls into a black hole, gets trapped inside, you'll never see it again, that's that. The problem is there's a pretty basic law of physics which convinces us that information can't be destroyed. It can be scrambled, it can be transmuted, but ultimately it can't be destroyed. And black holes seem to be flying in the face of that. And because of that tension, a number of physicists, people like Leonard Susskind, Gerard Tuft, others, they try to see whether the information might not really be lost. And over the course of many years, they developed an idea that when an object falls into a black hole, yes, indeed, it falls in, but a copy of all of its information content gets in some sense smeared out on the surface of the black hole, on the horizon of a black hole. Smeared out in some sense like a series of zeros and ones, the way information is stored in a typical computer. And that idea would suggest that a three-dimensional object inside the black hole can be described by information on a two-dimensional surface that surrounds the black hole. And it was a few years ago that string theory field that I work on gave really strong evidence to many of us that this idea really might be correct. Now, the reason why that's particularly interesting is because the space inside a black hole is not really fundamentally different. It isn't governed by different laws than space outside a black hole or space anywhere else, for that matter. So if we learn, as we seem to have, that a 3D object inside a black hole can be described by 2D information on a surface that surrounds it, that lesson should be quite general, which means that 3D objects, even the ones that we're familiar with, you and me and everything around us, these 3D objects may indeed be describable by 
information on a 2D surface that surrounds us, a surface that in some sense is at the edge of the universe. Now this starts to sound like a hologram. A hologram is a thin 2D piece of plastic which when illuminated correctly yields a realistic three-dimensional image. The idea is we may be that three-dimensional image of this more fundamental information on the 2D surface that surrounds us. Now let me just point out, this is a hard idea even for physicists who work on it every day to fully grasp. We're still trying to really dot the I's and cross the T's, understand in detail what this would mean. But there are many who now take this idea very seriously, that we may be a kind of holographic projection. So the World Science Festival is coming up at the end of the month. Uh, Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. The World Science Festival is an event that we hold each year in New York, end of May. This year it's May 30th to June 3rd. And the idea is to have a whole collection of programs for kids to adults, from those who know a lot about science to those who don't, on subjects from cosmology to quantum physics to neuroscience to sustainability to issues in psychology to issues having to do with pandemics and vaccines. I mean, a whole range of science where people can just come and get totally immersed and absorbed and excited by what's happening at the cutting edge of research. And our point in this event is to take science out of the classroom where for many people it's kind of a boring, dull, drag subject, and to bring the public face-to-face with the scientists that are pushing the envelope where they can really experience the drama and the wonder of discovery. So if anybody who's listening to this will be in the New York area in that time period, go to worldsciencefestival.com, see the wonderful spectrum of programs that are available, and come down and just immerse yourself for a few days in what I consider the greatest drama of the human species, scientific discovery. All right, great. So Brian Green, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Brian Green for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for the second half of the show today, we're going to be talking about Parallel Worlds and talking about John's new anthology that he just finished editing, Other Worlds Than These. All right, so John, uh, why don't you just start out and talk a little bit about what is a Parallel world story and what made stories uh, qualify to be in your anthology? Yeah, so basically, I mean, the the whole concept for the anthology is what if you could not only travel to any location in the world, but to any possible world? That sort of conceit is is broken up into two kinds of stories. You have parallel world stories and you have portal fantasy stories. Uh, Portal fantasy is a story in which a person from one world, uh, usually the real world, is transported to some other world uh, via some magical or unexplained means, Um, usually a world full of impossibilities and generally much stranger than the one they came from. A parallel world story is one in which uh, a person from one world, usually the real world, uh, is transported to some other world uh, via scientific or technological means. And usually the parallel world or alternate reality either ju- is just sl- is either just slightly different than the one they left or else vastly different with different physical laws, uh, but it's uh, generally uh, scientifically plausible in some way. Now, I always had the impression that when you talked about a portal fantasy story, it was just sort of implied that you were talking about characters from Earth going into a fantasy world. I mean, if you're going to have uh, if you're going to have like a strictly um, a, a very strictly defined uh, rule for for what a portal fantasy is, I, I would guess that that probably is what most people would would uh, agree with. Um, to me, like when I was doing the book, I mean, that was sort of the working definition I was or that was the definition I was working with. But um, as I came across uh, certain other stories, um, I came across ones where it wasn't the real world that they started in. And. It still felt to me like, oh, well, this this still is a portal fantasy because um, just because you don't start on the real world doesn't mean that, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same type of story uh, because basically it's like, you know, for the protagonist, it's, it's the same. It's like they're still going from one world into some, uh, you know, other world that's uh, completely different than everything they know. Um, and uh, if it's just as strange and magical as as it is for us to go to somewhere like Narnia, then, you know, I think it's the same type of story. Uh, could you give uh, an example or two of story, like where do people start out that's not Earth and where do they go? Yeah, so for, I mean, from the anthology, I mean, one example that comes to mind is is the Lonely Songs of Larendor by George R. R. Martin. Um, you know, in that story, uh, it, it's it's about a a girl who who travels to you know many different worlds and uh, and and you know 
she doesn't she doesn't she's not starting on earth uh, or any any anything that's recognizable as, as the real world per se so um but i mean there's there's lots of other examples uh um, out there certainly in novels and whatnot yeah i mean you know uh, i've mentioned many times in the show that my favorite series when i was a kid was robert Ashburn's myth series starting with the book uh, another fine myth and that's a fantasy series in which there are many dimensions that the characters travel to by magic and earth isn't uh you know they they never go to earth and there are no characters from earth in the series at all although by implication earth does exist because one of the characters is constantly making jokes that depend on you knowing <laughs> you know you recognizing so you know so we get the, we as the reader get the joke but skeeve the protagonist is always flummoxed by by these earth based uh this earth based humor and there's another book by Piers anthony that i read called split infinity which is interesting because that's uh you know, there's a character in a science fiction futuristic society, and he ends up traveling to a magical kingdom. Um, actually, you know, the Golden Compass, uh, you know, the His Dark Materials uh, trilogy by Philip Pullman. I mean, um, that's basically like a reverse portal fantasy, in, in that, um, you know, it starts off in the fantasy realm and, and you know, ends up having the character travel to the real world. Well, actually, you know, uh, my friend Tom Gerentzer once, I actually, I haven't read Stephen King's Dark Tower series, but he was telling me that he read the second book, which is all about parallel worlds, mm-hmm. and was really excited. And then he went and read all the other ones uh, at the time. And I guess he was saying that he was really disappointed that there weren't parallel worlds uh, in the other mm-hmm. ones in the series. And I've always thought that was kind of interesting, that idea of having an element in, in one book in a series that isn't in the other books in the series, and maybe setting the uh, reader up for disappointment if... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's actually a series where that that issue comes up a lot, just because um, a lot of the books are very different. You know, not even just for that reason. I mean, like the first book is almost completely different than all of the other ones. I mean, just in terms of tone and style. Um, as far as the parallel worlds goes, uh, you know, he he was probably talking about the book, the series before books five, six, and seven came out, um, which was you know in, in the last couple of years, um, and you know when there was a long period of time between book four and book five when that came out, and then books five, six, and seven all came out in, in, in rapid succession. Uh, but in the last three books, actually, he returns to the um, the parallel world stuff uh, quite a lot, and, and, and it is an important factor in the whole series. So um, I think it's definitely a, uh, an, an important work to, to consider if you're talking about parallel world stories or, or portal fantasies. So in your introduction, you actually mentioned a couple canonical examples of parallel world stories that I'm not actually sure qualify. So like uh, The Wizard of Oz, Right. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's just a tornado that picks up Dorothy's house and dumps it in Oz. Right. It's not like a hyperdimensional tornado. Right. Right. You know, well, no. I mean, it's. I mean, it's a portal fantasy. It's not a. It's not a parallel world story. It's a portal fantasy. And I mean, you know, just because it's a tornado and it's not, you know, an actual portal. I mean, it's. You know, it's still. It's still the same thing. I mean, I don't see any difference between um, the way Dorothy gets to Oz and the way the the kids in Narnia get to Narnia, and 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 Narnia is sort of the quintessential uh, portal fantasy. Oh, so you don't th- so you don't think a portal fantasy has to involve entering some other reality or other dimension or something like that? Well, I mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, Oz. You could you could call Oz the other, uh, you know, another reality or other dimension. I mean, it's like it's, but like it's like it's just a geographical. You know, they just go there. Like the wizard is going to get back. He's planning to get back from Oz just in a hot air balloon. You know, there, mm. there's not any kind of like magical portal or anything. Yeah, I guess that didn't, that didn't occur to me that that uh, that Oz is actually supposed to be someplace in the actual world. I, I don't know. That it doesn't feel that doesn't feel like that's what happened to me. It feels like they went to some other place where, I mean, because like the 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 rules of of the world in Oz don't aren't the same as the you know the rules in 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 the real world. Uh, and then also like Alice in Wonderland, that just all turns out to be a dream at the end. I mean, if you if you if you if you discount it because it turns out to be a dream, I mean, I guess that's valid. But I mean, you know, when you look at it on the surface, I mean, she, you know, she is being taken from one from from the real world into some magical world, and I mean, I, I think it counts. Yeah, like I guess if you stop reading in the middle, then it's a portal fantasy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was I was actually you know your book includes a, a recommended reading list at the back, mm-hmm. and I noticed that H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is on there. Mm-hmm. And that's another, you know, dream. You know, H.P. Lovecraft was afflicted his whole life by these really vivid, intense nightmares. And he has this whole cycle of stories that all take place in your dreams. And so I guess that that's sort of a maybe an edge case of whether that 
counts as a parallel world. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, in the um, in the recommended reading list, uh, uh, the the definition is a little bit looser than what I included in the anthology. Uh, you know, basically, I mean, the idea being that, you know, if you're interested in this type of fiction, these are other books that you would might find interesting as well, because they share similar themes. And uh, even if, like you say, like Alice in Wonderland turns out to be a dream and then and, and the Lovecraft story turns out to be a dream. I mean, I, th- I think that the aspects uh, of the the traveling to another world is that's what's going to draw the reader to the work and make them enjoy it. Or that's the thing that they enjoy about it. So um, they're similar enough that it's worth, uh, you know, sort of mentioning in the same discussion. I guess I maybe should have given a spoiler warning about how Alice in Wonderland <laughs> ends. I hope I didn't just totally ruin it, ruin the surprise for, although that's a pretty terrible ending anyway. So <laughs> I guess if you're forewarned about it, it's actually better. Another thing I, I, I kind of wasn't expecting in this book to see uh, stories about, Fair, you know, the realms of fairy, uh, mm-hmm. F-A-E-R-I-E, uh, mm-hmm. you know, elf lands. Although, like, once I started, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess those totally are, you know, alternate worlds. I mean, uh, do you want to just mention maybe what are some of the most noteworthy or uh, unusual uh, uses of the parallel worlds trope in the book? One example that comes to mind is uh, Tim Pratt's story, Impossible Dreams. Um, it won the Hugo Award uh, when it came out the, the year it was published. It's about a. It's like a parallel world story in which um, a guy sort of stumbles upon this uh, D, this like DVD rental shop or maybe it was VHS. I don't remember. But anyway, a, a video rental shop that has all these movies in it that are from like alternate realities. And so it's like you know it's like different versions of like Star Wars movies. Like instead of Return of the Jedi, it's Revenge of the Jedi, which is like you know one of the uh, alternate titles that had been bandied about for that movie and. And I and I gather with the that Tim Pratt story that he actually like for years I think kept a file on his computer and anytime somebody mentioned or he came across some interesting movie that almost got made, you know, or or casting that almost happened or something, he he added it to this list. So everything in the story is all based on real things like that. You know, like O. J. Simpson is the Terminator or mm-hmm. you know, Harlan Ellison's iRobot script, stuff like that. So, you know, in addition to being a great story, I think if you're into film trivia and film history and stuff it's just interesting just to find out about all these things these movie things that almost happened i was actually just reading paul melko's story uh, which is called 10 sigma so i thought that was really interesting uh it's sort of told from the perspective of a guy he has sort of a hive mind telepathic contact with versions of himself in i don't know hundreds or thousands of other dimensions and so they're all kind of peripherally aware of what all what's happening to, to all of them Oh, and so he's able to, you know, dodge punches and stuff because the versions of himself that get punched a little bit beforehand, you know, he's aware of that and and knows what's going to happen. But so he gets himself into this really dangerous situation where, you know, just scores of alternate versions of himself are being killed left or right. And it's it's just a really, uh, really crazy, really uh, imaginative story. Yeah, and actually, he has a he has a couple of novels that are set in the same milieu, um, and a couple other stories. So, I mean, if you if you dig that story, you, there's actually a much more to uh, um, that follows. So, and also, I was I was looking over the your recommended reading list, and one title in particular jumped out at me. This was "The Haunted Vagina" by Carlton Yawk <laughs> the Third. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Why do you recommend that story so highly? Do you think? <laughs> well, um, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the you know the recommended reading list is actually by Ross Lockhart. Um, so I, I didn't actually write the recommended reading list. I have not read The Haunted Vagina, but uh, I gather Ross is a big fan of it and uh, felt it was worthy of putting on the recommended reading list. So I, 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 uh, I trust his judgment. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's an example of bizarro fiction. So I mean, it's uh, if you're if you're looking for a bizarro, um, you know, parallel world story or portal fantasy, I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, I'm sure that's a fine, fine example. Do any of the stories in the book involve passing through orifices to get to a magical kingdom? Um, nothing quite like that that the title suggests. But uh, yeah. So, what do you think is the appeal of parallel worlds as a trope? Uh, and it sort of speaks to uh, our, our desire to, to explore like all these different possibilities, you know, because like, you know, when you start talking about, you know, quantum mechanics and everything and how, you know, you have, you know, like every single thing that could happen does happen and branches off into all these different universes. And it just it seems like natural that we would want to explore what happens in all these different timelines or whatever. 
Um, and then with the portal fantasy, I mean, it, that that seems even more basic. It's like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, like, especially uh, especially when you're a kid. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to, you know, escape their dull, you know, boring life and and travel to some magical world? Um, I mean, I think uh, Kat Valenti uh, said this somewhere um, uh, in talking about portal fantasies. It's like one of the weird things about it, though, is like, why are they always so eager to go home? And actually, she's. Uh, we should mention Cat as well as Cat uh, has a story in the book, but she also has, you know, the girl who circumvent the girl who circumnavigated fairyland in the ship of her own making is a, you know, sort of contemporary uh, portal fantasy uh, that that should be mentioned. But well, yeah, and and the point you're making is was also made uh, by Lev Grossman in his foreword to your book, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty funny, where he says that you know, C.S. Lewis's agenda in writing the Narnia books was to kind of prime kids to accept Christianity. And he said, Lev Grossman says, I don't think any kid ever actually, (laughs) it ever actually had that effect on any kid, but sort of the message that kids actually get out of it is, you know, find egress from this world as fast as you can and (laughs) uh, by any means necessary and get to a more interesting world. And I mean, I really think that one of the major appeals to these sorts of stories from the point of view of a writer is that it's just this very economical way to get a character that the readership can relate to into an imaginative space where you can do anything. And that's, I think, a freedom that storytellers sort of took for granted throughout all of human history, because throughout most of human history, you could just have a character from your tribe or society or whatever just get on a boat and sail off and soon be in anything, any environment you could imagine, you know, whether it's you know, Odysseus and his crew, you know, they just sail around the Mediterranean and, you know, they can just end up on any kind, you know, they can be islands with witches and cyclopses and nymphs and mm-hmm. uh, lotus eaters, just anything you can imagine. Um, but then sort of as the Mediterranean was explored and people are like, hey, there's no island with cyclopses, then you're like, okay, well, they had to sail farther. and mm-hmm. But you could still mm-hmm. be like Jonathan Swift and sail off, you know, and derive in uh, Lilliput or whatever. But our our own world is now so extensively mapped that you know if you're if you just want to invent an imaginary society you can't really put it in our world uh well without substantial difference if it's like a magical society or something it, it's very hard to fit it you know to find corners of the earth where you could still fit it but you have some kids go through a wardrobe and they're like bam they're in another world anything goes mhm so I just wanted to, to mention a couple of my sort of favorite deployments of the trope of parallel worlds. And, and one is from the myth books that I mentioned. There is a part where, uh, you know, they go to a world where the, there are these kind of sinister, duplicitous merchants named Deville's who travel the worlds, you know, making bad deals with people. And that's where, you know, like the legends of devils come from. And so, so these Deville's, they live in kind of tent stalls. Uh, because they want to seem like they're poor, that you're, you know, to put them in a better position for bartering. But then if you walk into their stalls, they have these gigantic palatial mansion castle things, you know, that the the tents are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. And so it's established that how how this is done is that you're actually crossing into a different world when you walk through the door of the tent. And so so the characters in the story, they acquire one of these tent castle things, but they there are no windows or anything in their castle there's just this giant castle and they find a door a hidden a secret door that's all padlocked and all locked up in 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 various ways and so they start to wonder well wait what's what's what else is in this world besides this castle you know what's outside the walls of this castle obviously it's something bad and i've always just thought that was really cool and really creepy just that idea of living in a house and and there not being any windows in the house and not knowing what was on the other side of the walls. Uh, another uh, example I want to mention of a parallel world story is this novel by Gene Wolfe called There Are Doors. And the premise is that there's a guy and he meets a woman and they sleep together. And then she tells him that she's actually from another world. And now that he's slept with her, he's going to see doorways to other worlds. And that if he uh, finds, if he stumbles across one of these doorways, to make sure to back out of it, not to turn around, because then he'll he'll be lost, but just to back up and he'll get out and not to go into any of them because uh, bad things will happen. And then she disappears. And so later on, he does actually find himself going into one of the, you know, inadvertently going into one of these doorways. You know, but he decides he's really uh, 
he he really misses her. So he he decides he's going to go through this doorway and see if he can find her. And it turns out that she's a goddess in this other world, and that in the world that she's from, men uh, like some insects in our world die after they have sex. And so she has to go to other worlds if she wants to have sex with people hmm. and have them not die. And the thing that's always really stuck with me about that book is that I read an interview with Gene Wolfe about it, where, you know, the world, this world in which men die if they have sex doesn't really seem that much different than our world. Uh, like they don't have color television is one thing I remember. <laughs> uh, it's one of the big differences. But, you know, the interviewer said, well, wouldn't the world be completely different? Wouldn't society and everything be completely different if men died after they had sex and gene wolf was kind of like well you know that's what i thought at first but the more i thought about it i didn't really think much would be different about it <laughs> and uh i don't know i think about that a lot like really you know would that how much of a difference would that make and could things be so superficially similar with such a drastic uh, change in place one of my favorite examples um aside from the stories in the anthology obviously is uh the tv show sliders um like in, from the time it was uh, developed, like in the '90s or whatever, like it, it. I mean, the concept was really cool. I mean, it it sort of had the the critical flaw of the Gilligan's Island syndrome because it's like they're it's like four people who are trapped in like this um um sort of endless loop of traveling from from parallel world to parallel world, and and they keep hoping to get back home. But you know, no, I mean, I, I mean, basically every every episode was just you know them traveling to some different parallel world, and some of them were just like a little bit different, and so like they they would get to the new world, and they would think that it's the that it's the real world, and it's like uh, I remember there was one where like the the one guy um, played by Jerry O'Connell, like he he thinks that he thinks that they're back home, but then he gets. He gets to his house and, and like the gate doesn't squeak in the right way and he's like, Oh crap, it's <laughs> not it. And 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 I think like maybe they jump away again or whatever and, and then it you know, some guy walks by with like an oil can. It's like he just had oiled the, the, <laughs> the gate or something. So like maybe they actually really were home. So I mean I always thought that was cool. I mean I think when we discussed when when we interviewed George Martin, he talked about his TV show uh Doorways that was in development that never got produced um and is kind of the same premise um and it sounded like that was probably more of a uh, a serious you know intellectual treatment of the same idea they did they have actually started uh taking some of the unproduced scripts for that and adapting them as graphic novels what you were just saying about sliders, though, reminds me, I mean, this is technically a time travel story, not strictly speaking parallel worlds, but there was an episode of The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, where <laughs> it's kind of a takeoff on Bradbury's Sound of Thunder, where, you know, like Homer goes back in time and steps on a butterfly, and then everything's different when he gets back to the present. And so he keeps like going back in time and like stepping on mm -hmm. more and more animals, you know, and trying to get a acceptable <laughs> present when he gets when he returns. And so he gets to one. And it's like perfect, like everyone's healthy and beautiful. And there's no war and no disease mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And then he's like, uh, I think I'm going to go get a donut. And people are like, what? <laughs> and he's like, ah! He like runs and like goes, yeah. you know, he's like, that's totally unacceptable, the world with no donuts. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that was one of the things I ran into with the anthology was, uh, you know, was the whole time travel thing. And it's like, yeah, obviously there's a lot of crossover where you have time travel stories that involve, uh, you know, sort of reshaping the timeline so that, you know, in essence, creating parallel worlds. But I just sort of had to draw the line because it's like, you know, time travel is its own thing. And so I just, I, you know, basically cut off time travel from being um, eligible for inclusion in the anthology since, you know, there's so many different time travel stories and uh, there've been so many time travel anthologies that, you know, I, I figured that that stuff that is explicitly time travel related is well represented already. I guess sort of another aspect of, of parallel worlds is this idea that if anything you can imagine exists in a parallel world somewhere, then all the fictional worlds that you love, you know, you could step into them and be in the world of, of whatever. I guess that, that a lot of those assume that, you know, there could be magic or whatever in, in parallel worlds. But granting mm -hmm. that, granting that for a second, um, I mean, there's, there's a book called The Mathematics of Magic where it's the complete enchanter stories of Elsprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. And I've never read any of those, but I've heard about them as sort of, you know, canonical parallel world stories about characters who travel to the different worlds out of, you know, Norse mythology or, you know, whatever. And each time they arrive in the world, they sort of have to figure out where they've arrived and what the rules are, you know, what's, what sort of story they've landed in and how to survive uh, that environment. But, you know, my all-time favorite example of the trope of parallel worlds uh, is The Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny. Sort of how he came up with the idea for that is he said he was just walking through a city street and it was raining, you know, whatever. 
and he's just sort of turned a corner. And all just, just as soon as he turned that corner, all of a sudden the sun came out, and you know somehow the, the architecture had completely changed, and it was just like stepping into a different world. And it just gave him the idea, you know, what if you could just walk around and change that, you know, change with the power of your mind, just change what the street looked like that you were walking on. And you could just keep doing that and doing that. And by that process, arrive in any reality that you could imagine. And so in his Amber series, the, the premise is that there's one true world called Amber. And then the royal family of Amber, they have this ability to, to walk out into parallel worlds and just change things as they walk that's that's actually that's the series i mentioned uh, in the interview with brian green where the physics can be different from world to world you know so so the world of amber has a very medieval character because as a defensive measure it was actually created to be a world where advanced technology wouldn't work and uh and so the characters you know carry swords uh, rather than guns for the most part although in uh, in one of the books, one of the characters has discovered an, a, an obscure compound that actually will work as gunpowder and amber. So he's able to attack this medieval city uh, with uh, M16s and stuff. <laughs> but it does really play on this idea that anything you could imagine is is out there somewhere. And so they do. The characters find themselves, you know, in a world that's sort of a melange of Lewis Carroll references. Um, and you know, one of my favorite things is that. You know, the main character needs an army to attack Amber. And so he just wanders through worlds until he finds one where the reigning religion is that there's going to be this battle between these two brothers. And sort of at Armageddon, the, the people are going to have to join the good brother to fight the evil brother. And so they kind of worship him as a god and will be sort of holy warriors for him. And it's all just completely cynical on his part. You know, he's just constructed this reality where, where this is what the religion is, just so he can take advantage of these people. One other just Amber thing I want to toss in is that, that I think is really cool is that in one of the books, uh, one of the characters has come to Earth and he's studied computer science and he wants to make an artificial intelligence machine. Uh, but of course, according to all the laws of physics, it's impossible to make something like that. But of course, being from Amber, you know, he can just walk among worlds and find a world with the screwiest, most unlikely laws of physics that you can imagine. And so he's able to build his ultimate AI machine in a world with just completely screwy physics that he's uh, sort of specified himself. All right, yeah, cool. So I think those are some of our favorite examples of parallel worlds. So maybe you guys might want to go check some of those out. Uh, yeah, so, and if you guys want to pick up uh, other worlds than these, uh, it's going to be coming out from Nightshade Books in July. And as as we mentioned, uh, there's also the extensive uh, um, for further reading list in the back of the book that has other novels um, ha or has a bunch of novels that are on the, that fit the theme. Um, and uh, for you Geeks Guide super fans out there, um, you know Dave uh, himself has a has a story in the in the anthology uh, called the Ontological Factor. It was published in Cicada Magazine uh, just last year. It's a fine fine example of the portal fantasy. I'm not just saying that because he's sitting right here. Yeah, and this is actually, this is my sort of homage to Robert Asprin's Myth series. Uh, John and I were actually in uh, sitting in Grand Central Station years ago, and we were supposed to meet some people, and they didn't show up for hours and hours, so we were just talking. And, you know, it just sort of came up in this conversation. We both really liked those books, and so John said, yeah, you should write uh, you know, an homage to, to those books. And I thought about that for, for years, and I, I did a, a couple of different concepts, and I didn't like any of them uh, enough. Uh, but uh, finally, I came up with an idea, the idea for this one uh, that uh, that I liked, and and I wrote it. And but it 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 is uh, has very much the same style of humor as those books. And if you've read if you've read all those books a dozen times, like I have, you'll you'll hmm. catch all these little references. Uh. And uh, speaking of John's projects, he has another exciting project coming up. Uh, you want to tell us about that, John? I'm currently doing a Kickstarter for uh, a new horror magazine. Um, as you guys probably know, uh, you know, I edit and publish uh, Lightspeed magazine, which uh, publishes science fiction and fantasy short stories. Uh, but now I'm also uh, doing a Kickstarter to fund uh, the launching of Nightmare magazine, which is a uh, which is a horror magazine, uh, as the title implies. So, uh, so uh, the Kickstarter is currently ongoing. It closes on June seventh. Um, so, if you would like to donate, uh, you could just if if you want to find it, just go to geeksguideshow.com. We'll have a link uh, to the Kickstarter over over on the sidebar. 
you know, uh, un- unlike some Kickstarters, um, I mean, we actually have everything um, priced so that it's just uh, like you're pre-ordering stuff. So, um, you know, if you donate $3, you get a copy of the first issue and, you know, the issues will cost $3 when, we- when we're publishing. So it's like just like you're pre-ordering. Um, you can also uh, buy a one-year subscription, two-year or three-year. Um, and then we have some upper-level rewards as well. Like we have a limited edition um hard copy edition of the first issue that will be signed by the contributors and that kind of stuff. Um, and then you can also buy a lifetime subscription and some other stuff. The first issue will have stories by Laird Barron, uh, Sarah Langan, Jonathan Mayberry, and Genevieve Valentine. And, and you know, I mean, the, the stories we've got in hand already are great. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing them with everyone. Uh, so hopefully it will get funded. Um, as we're recording this right now, it's actually um, 45% funded. So it's looking pretty good, but uh, every little bit helps. So um, if you're into horror, please check it out. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So thanks so much to Brian Green for being on the show. And be sure to catch our next episode in which we'll be interviewing Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman. We're very excited about that. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.